On today's episode, we have Dr. John Demartini. John has a doctorate in human behavior. He's delved deep into diverse fields, including psychology, philosophy, economics, and theology. As a researcher, his contributions have been prolific to the fields of behavioral psychology and human potential, and have earned him international recognition. A celebrated author, Dr. Demartini has penned numerous books, including bestsellers like The Breakthrough Experience and The Values Factor. John's work delves into the realms of consciousness, human behavior, and personal fulfillment, offering a roadmap to a life lived in alignment with one's true purpose and values. In this episode, we'll embark on a journey through the life and wisdom of Dr. John Demartini, exploring the transformative powers of his teachings and the profound impact he's made on countless lives. We'll delve deep into his incredible insights in human behavior and successful stop. This is an episode you won't want to miss. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Dimartini, welcome to the Accelerating Excellence podcast. I've been really looking forward to this one. Well, thank you. I've been looking forward to Thank you for having me. Can, can we start off with you sort of orientating the audience in terms of your almost origin story? Uh, the brief one-minute version? <laughs> yeah, let's go for it. Uh, I had challenges in learning when I was a child. Speech, writing, reading. I was told I would never be able to read, write, or communicate in first grade. Started failing, dropped out of school, street kid. Picked up surfing, went surfing, <laughs> became a surf rat. <laughs> nice. Made to California from Texas, because surf wasn't biggest in Texas. <laughs> Made it to Hawaii eventually. Lived on the North Shore, rode big waves gradually. Nearly died at 17. And met an amazing teacher right before my 18th birthday that did a presentation one night. It made me believe that maybe I could overcome my learning problems and someday be intelligent. I thought I was going to be okay at surfing, but I never thought I could read. I didn't read till I was 18, really. So my life changed that night. I had a dream and vision to want to overcome my learning problems, someday become intelligent, be a teacher. And I want to travel to every country around the world. So I set out on a mission to do that. And 50, almost one years, November will be 51 years later, still doing it. It's, and it's an, it. Yeah, and it's an incredible story. And in, in terms of this, it seems like there's a significant emotional event, event that sort of sparked this, uh, shifted your perceptions of your own potential, and you went off on this incredible journey, and you've just absolutely excelled in your craft. And and now a big part of the work you do, and, and something I find for that fascinating is your work around helping others almost uncover or create that that moment you almost experienced that night that can shift people's trajectories in life um could you talk to us a little bit about how you how, how you do that well it was my dream that night when i met him that i thought someday when i'm his age i want to be able to do what he's doing to and pass the torch because i felt like he was passing the torch to me in that moment and that's been my dream ever since. Still is. So anything that I've been able to learn that can assist people in doing something extraordinary with their life, I'm interested in. And that's taken me to a vast number of fields, <laughs> a lot of different studies. And just I love devouring information that might give people competitive advantage whether it be in, in uh, business or in, you know, like you say, in sports or just in life. And so that's led me to every different study I can get my hands on. And then I take that information and I do what I can to share it. And I have worked with a lot of people. So I get to take those stories and share it, which can inspire people. That's what happened to this, this gentleman. He, when he spoke to me that night, well, to the group, I was—I felt he was speaking to me. He made it believe it was possible. And I really believe there's strategies that any human being can do that if they apply it, they can do something extraordinary with their life. So I, I love showing that. I, I, you know, you came to the breakthrough experience. You know how 
that's an inspiring weekend for me to get to to participate in. So I love doing that. I've done it 1,185 times. <laughs> that's incredible. And could you mind sharing us who that individual was? You mean Paul C. Bragg, the man that, that inspired me? Yes. Yeah. Some of the people out there in the health field maybe remember Bragg's amino acids or something like that, or Patricia oh, Bragg okay. in water. And this was Paul Bragg. He was the guy. He initiated Jack Elaine's career, who was an icon in America in the 50s till just recently. Right. And um, and he impacted, gosh, Steve, Steve Jobs was impacted by him. His life was impacted by it. Donald Trump was impacted by it. The, the list, I, there's about 139 very famous celebrity people that their lives transformed by meeting this man. I was one of them. Okay. So I... I I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to be at the right place at the right time to meet the right individual. And and it's it sounds like this this sort of that sort of sparked the journey for you to uncover your inspired mission. And it's a word I'm sort of stealing from you there. Um, could you talk to us about the significance of truly understanding what your values are and the impact that can have on, on your career and performance? Full stop. Every human being has a set of priorities, a set of values, things that are most to least important in their life that they run their life by. It's impacting their perception, decisions, and actions, and all their behavior. So many people, I mean, I've been doing value determinations for over 45 years now. And well, that, that's not true. 45 next month. <laughs> so 45 years. And uh, without a doubt, when you set goals, objectives, intentions that are aligned and congruent with what you value most, you increase the probability of making those become real and transforming the ideas into reality. But if it's lower on the values, you'll procrastinate, hesitate, frustrate. You won't be disciplined, reliable, and focused, and you'll have a decreasing probability. So identifying what you have as a hierarchy of values in life determines your destiny. I, I'm a firm believer in starting there. You know, I have it on my website, drdmartin.com, a free complementary value determination process for that objective. It's private. It's just you go on and you do it and it's for you. And it's a fantastic starting point because most people don't know what they value. They think they do. I'll give you an example. If I ask a thousand or 10,000 people in a seminar, how many of you would love to have financial independence? 99 will put their hand up, 99%. And about half and more will put both hands up and some will put their leg in the air. <laughs> so they're adamant about it. But then when I say, how many of you have financial events, all the hands go down. And small percent, less than 1% have their hands up in most audiences. Now, if I'm dealing with executives of major companies, that'll be a higher percentage. But most of them, it's down. So why? Why is it they say they want something and then there's no action? And the reason is, in their minds, they've conjured up being financially independent is spending money on stuff and, and living a, you know, a, an exuberant, luxurious life, buying you know, things that depreciate value, consumables, and having stuff. And they don't realize that financial independence doesn't come that way. That's spending money. It comes from putting your money into assets that go up in value. People that value wealth building have money that goes into assets. People that don't, they go into things that go down in value. And where that is on the hierarchy of your values will dictate your financial destiny. So most people say they want that, but then their life doesn't demonstrate it. So I don't go by what people say. I go by what their life demonstrates. That's why on my website, there's a, a real more objective way of looking at your life and be honest about what's really going down instead of the fantasies. Because you'll beat yourself up expecting to get goals that aren't really important to you. And 99, I've been doing this a long time, 45 years, 99% of the people, when they tell me their goals, they're not their goals. They're their fantasies. And a real goal gets accomplished. But most people don't know the distinction. So I, in the breakthrough experience, I help them make that distinction so they can start setting goals that manifest. Absolutely. And that's an incredible tool. We'll make sure we include the link to that off the back of this podcast. But I mean, in that respect, um, it's such an, a critical point you're making there about how we almost think we have these goals, but the reality is 
when you scratch beneath the surface and you engage in that second level behavior and you actually look at the tangibles in someone's life, you can sort of help peel back what's truly value to them. I mean, could you could you give us a couple of examples of of uh, you've given a great one in terms of the wealth wealth side of things, but um, is there another example from someone perhaps um, in in terms of pursuing um, performance in a specific area and perhaps deluding themselves about what's really important to them and they're convinced it's yeah. this, but in reality they're just on another planet. Yeah, I can think of two. I'll give two. Uh, one deals with a soccer player. And uh, he says he wants to be this superstar soccer player. And he just rants about it. But when I look at his actions, he wants to encourage other people to be. He's more of a teacher and coach than he is actually playing. And some people are magnificent coaches, and they don't have to be the best player to be the coach. <laughs> some people want to play. So I noticed... He was kept coming to the program and telling me he wants to be a soccer player. And I, and I kept saying, well, where's the evidence? He said, well, I work out and I do this and I play every day. And I said, yeah, but it seems like you're counseling and coaching and pushing other people with your friends. That's what I'm serving. I'm observing. No, I want to be this. And I said, okay. And I didn't see any evidence of it. And I watched this guy for about a three-year period. I finally, I confronted him and I said, uh, what I'm seeing, what I'm what I'm observing, and what you're saying are two different things. So, are you sure you really want to play soccer at this level? Because I think you want to coach. I think you want to be a help young kids at a young age be in soccer. And he started crying. He goes, "I think you nailed me." I said, "I think I have too." So we moved him from going out for being a super because he had a belief I had to do that first to do what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. If I don't do it, I have no credibility. I told him, I said, you don't have to be a great soccer player to be a great coach. If you love being coached and you want to coach kids and want to inspire kids, he said, that's what I want to do. And he started that business and he flourished. Just boomed. Because it was his heart. And, and all of a sudden, he's, he let go of the fantasy of him having to do it because he was doing that as a means to an end instead of going directly to what he wanted to do. And he had a break on. And he didn't. And there's a part of him that knew he could coach and teach. I have another guy right now in Canada who's doing the same thing. And in, in, uh, he gave himself permission. He did really well, but not superstar level. But his real love was helping coaches again. So I saw it both soccer and I've seen it in there. People have that. Sometimes they, they, they don't make that subtle distinction. Soccer is still it, but it's actually the coaching of soccer. Both those guys, both in in uh, in soccer and also in hockey, same thing. And I also have people that come up to me. Women sometimes come up and says, "I want to find my relationship," and I look at their actions. <laughs> and they're working ten to twelve hours a day. They're running major businesses. They want to make their own money. They don't want to depend on a guy. They've been wounded by a guy that controlled them. Last time they had a guy that controlled them, they let go of their business and they went crashing. And the guy left. And then they were, you know, under struggle zone. And so they have a, a, what they say, I want to find my soulmate. I want to find my soulmate. But what their life has demonstrated, I want to run my business. I want to have my own kids. I don't want to have to rely on a guy. I don't want to be dependent like my mom. And so what, what's really going down and what they say are not congruent. And I have to filter that out in the breakthrough experience. I see people with you know, unrealistic expectation. Because anytime you try to set a goal that's not aligned with what you really value, you have this internal conflict and internal friction. And it sort of almost swallows up your psychological firepower, doesn't it? And it sort of just impedes, yep. you use that word I love, like the, the brakes on. And it's like, you've got your foot on the accelerator and your foot on the brake because you sort of love, and I love that word that you use as well, fantasy. There's this fantasy, it's almost this sexy myth and we see it because society puts so many organizations and professions on pedestals um would you mind sharing what you mean in terms of fantasizing because for me that was one of the most profound things that, that i've learned from you and i'm certainly well, been guilty of it in the past <laughs> there's there's two types of fantasies there's many variations but there's two basic types there's actually three one is that setting a goal that's not congruent with your highest value. 
where you automatically have a decent, decreasing probability of, of achieving it because you won't take action on it. See, we have spontaneous inspired action in what we value most. Uh, my, my love is teaching. I've been doing it 51 years almost. I am, you don't have to motivate me. You don't have to incentivize me. You don't have to remind me to get up and teach. My second highest value is researching and writing. You don't have to do, I don't need motivation for that. If you need motivation to do anything you say is important, it's not important. I don't need motivation for that. Now, I might need motivation to go cook or, or drive a car. I haven't driven a car in 33 years. Anything that requires motivation in my life, I've delegated to specialists who love doing it and surround myself with people that can't wait to get up in the morning and do what I want to delegate. I learned a long time ago, that's the way to liberate yourself. So many people have fantasies in the form of setting goals that aren't really congruent with what they value. Like, I want to be financially independent. I'd like to be a soccer player. Da, da, da. The second one is a one-sided expectation. I want a relationship that's all supportive, never challenging, all kind, never cruel, all positive, never negative, all peaceful, never wrathful, all considered, never inconsiderate, all generous, never stingy. Not going to happen. <laughs> Any relationship you have is going to have support and challenge, kind and cruel, nice and mean, positive, and negative, all pairs of opposites. So an, un an unrealistic expectation of having a one-sided world. As the Buddha says, the desire for that which is unobtainable, one side, and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable, the other side, is a source of human suffering. So that automatically creates doubt, insecurity, fears, anxieties, phobias, because you're striving for a one-sided world, the other side comes with it, and you don't want that side. So all that's frightening to you, and so it's all distracting you. The third one is a kind of a mixture. It's having a goal that is aligned, but you haven't strategized the pathway. And so you, you, you see this, what you want, but you don't have a strategy on how to get it. You don't have the action steps. And so that's what the executive center in the forebrain. See, when you set goals that are congruent with your highest values, the blood glucose and oxygen goes into the forebrain and the forebrain strategizes. It, it sees an inspired vision. It strategizes objectives. It, it, it mitigates risk. It then executes plans accordingly and it governs behavior that are distractive. So not having a strategy, if you say you want to go to Mars, great. You can sit there and go, well, I don't want to have any negative thoughts about it. Well, you're not going to make it to Mars with positive thinking. You get to Mars with thinking, what does it take? What are the challenges we're going to face? What are the obstacles we're running to? How do we solve each one of them with contingency plans? And what is the priority actions that we take along each step? And planning it out, foresighting it. Foresight takes you farther than hindsight. Hindsight is learning from trial and error. It's the lowest heuristic mechanism you can learn by. But if you go through and do foresight, you can pre-plan, and that's what our mind is for, to be able to go into and imagine what's there and looking at the possible responses abstractly and coming up with solutions so the anxiety is gone and you have the actions to take. That's strategy. So uh, uh, one that's not congruent with your highest value, one that's not strategized, and one that's fantasizing one-sidedness, those are the three most common fantasies that people have. And I see them almost every week in breaks are coming in with the fantasies. And then they wonder why they're anxious, self-sabotaging. That's what they label it. There is no self-sabotage. It's just feedback from your brain letting you know you're going after fantasy. You know, self-depreciation, anxiety, phobias, doubts. All that is a normal, healthy, biological response to people pursuing fantasies to try to get them into ground and into something authentic. And to move, yeah, to move them back on track, I guess. And, and in that respect, so what would you say causes a lot of this in the world we live in? Is it is it external, the external impositions of other people's values? Is it brainwashed by media or Instagram or? Well, I don't want to blame anything on the outside because I don't watch and watch all those things. So I, none of those run my life because I may deposit things onto them through my team, but I don't sit and get distracted by them because I, it's not the highest. If you're not asking yourself, what's the highest priority action I can be doing today to help me fulfill my mission and serve the greatest number of people, you're not automatically going to be maximizing your life. So I don't waste my time on it, but I do believe that uh, how you perceive those things can make a difference. 
if you're if you put somebody on a pedestal and think, oh my God, they're amazing, and I don't have that, and you minimize yourself. Anytime you minimize yourself to any human being on earth, you're tending, you're going to tend to want to inject their values in your life and try to envy them and imitate them. And then you automatically become second at being somebody else instead of first being you. And that's not the path. And you're going to end up beating yourself up as it let you know that you're pursuing a path that's a tangent to who you are. And so the envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide, as Emerson said. I, I think it was Einstein who said, my, my contempt for authority is what made me one. <laughs> I didn't buy into authority. I looked within and I went mastered the skills and I became great at what I did. We're not here to compare ourselves to others. We're here to compare our actions to our own highest priority. And so, yeah, the injected values of others, which could come from media, if we put them on a pedestal, if we believe that the stuff we see on media, that's that's almost kind of not very bright. <laughs> There's a lot of misinformation. Paul Dirac, the Nobel Prize winner, said it's not that we don't know so much. We know so much that isn't so. There's a whole lot of stuff that's not so. And anytime it sensates with extreme polarities, doomsday, you know, gloom and doom or boom and zoom, you know it's not true. You know, it's just it's a it's a one sided, subjective, biased interpretation of something. So if I can't see both sides of it simultaneously, I know it's it, it's an error, it's an illusion. So I try to govern myself with my intuition and how I, what I'm filling my mind with. I want my mind filled with information that's solid, so I can build on it. Absolutely, and one one of the words that's, that sort of jumps to mind there for me when I'm listening to you is is this word authenticity, which is often banded around, I guess, in in management, leadership, so on and so forth. But to an extent, I guess, a lot of what you're talking about there is to become authentic with who you are and where you're optimized and then, and then pursuing that. And I know that's a big part of what your breakthrough process does. And obviously the value determination tool you talked about is a, a critical asset in helping orientate yourself on that. Um, in terms of what you're talking about, on this on this aspect of fantasies as well but one of the things i often hear in sport that kind of bugs me is this you'll you'll hear people make these statements along the lines of you know play the play the game not the occasion but there's no substance behind that that's what really resonated for me when i started to read your work because it was almost this explanation about okay well it's very well and good you telling me that play the game and not the occasion but how do I actually go out there and do it? How do I avoid fantasizing about how um, this cup final will change my life? And if I fail, then it's it's like like you talked about there, doomsday or paradise, heaven and hell. Um, and and can you could could you talk to us about what the benefits are of being fully conscious going into say a big cup final or the big pitch or in, even into battle in, in a military perspective? Well, your autonomic nervous system regulates a lot of physiology. And if you infatuate with something and get manic and a fantasy, your parasympathetic sympathetic system gets imbalanced. And so the feedback from that for performance goes down because you get subjective feedback. Let's let's give an example. Let's say you meet a, a girl on the street or a guy on the street and you're attracted to him or today, whatever they call they. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the whole yeah, spectrum. Yeah. Uh, but you're attracted to some human being. At first, if you're attracted to them and you have an impulse and you can't get them out of your mind, you have an infatuation, which means you're conscious of the upsides, you're unconscious of the downsides. So you don't know them. All you have is you're now enamored and attracted to a fantasy about who they're going to be. So that means that you have a skewed view and your physiology is responding to your perception. So you're not actually performing at peak. You're actually manic and elated and you're now attracted and that is running in. So if you are about to go into a performance on sports and you're enamored with somebody next to you and you're infatuated with them, your performance is automatically lost. That's why uh, Phelps said before he goes up there, he doesn't look to the left and right of him to see who's on either side. He looks forward at his objective. And and it's it's about him and, and he's practiced in before so many thousands of times. He's just going through it. No matter what they do, he knows how to respond. But if he elaborates on them and puts them on a pedestal or pit, he just lost the race. 
The same thing on if you resent somebody, you're conscious of the downside, unconscious of the upside. So when you do, that means you don't have a full deck of cards when you're making decisions and acting. You're seeing a skewed view, a subjective bias. Let's let's imagine three beakers of water here. One of them is really hot, 140 degrees. One is really cold, 40 degrees. And one is 70 degrees. So if you put your hand in that hot water, 140 degrees, and then put your hand into the tepid water, 70 degrees, it's going to think, you're going to think it's 60 because you've compared it to something 140. It's going to feel cold. We've all done that. We've gone from hot water to cold water. It, it distorts the perspective. And if we stop, let our body regulate, then go into cold water and put our hand in the ice almost, and then go put it in the tepid water, it's going to feel really warm. You won't even think about it. So you won't, because you've compared, you will have a subjective view of 72 degrees or 70 degrees. If you didn't have that comparison, you just put your hand into the water at 70 degrees and you've got a good, you've got a good idea at 70 degrees. So anytime you do comparison by the law of contrast, you skew subjectively your interpretation and your performance is based on a, what you're perceiving. If your perceptions are off, your performance is off. That's why you want an objective goal that you're targeting on and you're not sitting there comparing yourself to anybody. You're comparing only your actions to what your objective is. Understood. Another question I'd love to get your insight on is, again, linking, sort of using the drawing on the athletic metaphor today, but this happens across all areas of life. Choking. The famous ones, of course, the, goal to, the golfer on the 18th hole. Um, you know, it's all theirs to have, then suddenly... Their, eye, their, their, their mind commits an active mutiny against them and they sort of seem to lose uh, access to all that skill that seemed to just flow from them before. I mean, in, in those moments, from your perspective, what, what tends to be going on there? Anytime you exaggerate the importance of something or exaggerate the pleasure and exhilaration or fantasy of what it is, you're going to fear its loss. So if you infatuate with a girl or a guy, you're going to fear their loss. You'll be jealous. You have envy. You'll have all kinds of stuff because you fear somebody taking them away because you infatuate with it. If you're resentful, you're going to fear its gain. So if you infatuate with what you think success is going to bring, you're going to fear the exact opposite of it coming near you. And now you're distracted by your phobias, fear of loss of that, what you want. Oh my God, I could lose this. This is, this is too important. I'll lose it. Or what would happen if I failed? And you'll be distracted by infatuation resentments instead of having to have a neutral idea. And that means that if you don't have a cause greater than the winning that, you won't. One of the most significant things you learn is to have a cause bigger than the winning of that event to go towards. So you see this on the way, not as the, as the way. So in other words, let me give you another story. Uh, probably 1983, Three, November 1983, New York, Marriott Marquis Hotel. I was speaking with six people for 20 minutes each for two-hour session on the, the, the best ideas to grow your practice to doctors, 5,000 doctors. I was uh, 28 years old, and, uh, and, and I, I get up, and then right before I'm about to go on stage, there's a guy ahead of me named Zev. And he turned to me right before they're about to call his name. It's like five minutes before. And he says, this is a day I've been waiting since I was a little boy. My dad spoke on this page. I'm finally here. I finally arrived. I'm successful. And in my mind, I'm, I've got this funny look on my face. What? It's an interesting statement. And he's, he was my age. But he saw that as the ultimate success. So he got up there and he did okay. I wouldn't say it was wow, but it was okay. But that was because he was so high on that. It was, if I don't do well here, it's devastating. And if I fail, then I would be, you know, I would be destroyed. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't think this is success at all. I see this one of 10,000 presentations I intend to give in my life. This is just a starting point. And I get up there and I didn't have no, I had no attachment. I didn't have the idea this is success. I didn't have this idea. This is the, and if I don't do well, I said, I'm going to use this as a 
as a way of polishing my skill of my long-term dream. So I'm a man on a mission, not a man of success. And I went on, and I'm still speaking. I hadn't seen him in years. And I learned, I, and I learned that again, even younger at age 18, when there was a girl that lived behind us that had a tennis court. And uh, we had we lived in the country then, and they had another place. And she came and said, can you play tennis with me? And I said, well, I'm not really good at tennis. She says, it doesn't matter. I just need somebody to, to play back with me. And then I went out there and I wanted to beat her. I wanted to be successful at it, right? Beat her at the thing. And the first few games I did, and I wasn't even great at it, but she didn't care. She wanted to master tennis. So she was using me as a ball thrower. Didn't matter where the ball went. Didn't matter. She just used it as a practicing thing. Within six months, I couldn't beat her. Then another six months, I didn't want to play because I felt like I was going to lose it every time. And I was attached to winning. And she went on to be a champion. I never played again. I mean, I, I mean, occasionally, but I did. I never pursued it. Never really had a desire for it. But the point was, she did not go there to play to just get only one side. She went there to master the skill. And every time she practiced, she was mastering a skill. She knew that if she mastered her skills, she would end up at the top. So she just kept fact, focusing on the mastery of the skills day after day, the basics. Go back to the basics and mastering the basic skills. And she ended up being one of the great uh, tennis players. I never played again because I was about to, I had to win. And so people get attached to the outcome instead of mastering of the skill. Yeah. And focus on the, the I guess the battle rather than the, the war. In that respect. Yeah. Yeah. And have a goal. You know, at, at, at one time uh, in golfing, I had the opportunity to, to meet with Tiger Woods. And, and he said to me, when I played golf, it wasn't about me winning a game. That was just a tiny portion of it. Mine was, to do something for Afro-Americans. I was doing it as a cause for a culture. I wanted to be, I wanted to do something for our culture. So his cause was bigger. Mm -hmm. When Sony was going out and building Sony, right? At the time, China was, uh, and, and Japan was copycats. They take products from America and copy them. Oh. And they're known for the Japan, Japan was made for that. Sony said, no, we're not going to be copycat. We're going to be known for quality. And they had a cause for the sake of Japan to change the image of Japan. And Sony put them, put them on the map. Same thing with Amazon, with, with just Jeff Bezos. You know, he, he went over there and, and learned the same thing and had a cause. Mine is on, I'm a man on a mission. I don't see myself as a success. People say, well, how did you become successful? I don't ever think of myself successful. I'm just on a man on a mission on a daily basis. I teach, research, write, and travel. Carry, chop wood, carry water. Zen. Just every day, teach, research, write. So you build a body of quality knowledge, you present with more skill, and you travel the world and you share. And slowly but surely, you end up doing something that other people think is successful. Yeah, it's brilliant to hear. And I guess, is it, is it fair to say that that fear of loss of something that you, you want to gain is almost the would, it, would that be the, the, I guess, the perfect growth spot for ego to come in? Is that where well, ego is born from? Well, ego means self, the I. There's nothing unhealthy about having ego. It's the false ego, the pride. Okay. Pride before the fall. There's a difference. The true ego is nobody's going to escape. Nobody's going to get rid of it. People think they're going to get rid of their ego because of misunderstanding of between true and false egos. The false ego is where you have exaggerated yourself, puffed yourself up, and now you have the fear of loss of your pride and the fear of shame. And that's where success and failure comes in. Uh, as Keo, from the, the head of Coca-Cola company at one time said, I'm leery of people that think they're successful, they're on their way down. And that's because they depurpose themselves. There's a thing called a moral licensing effect. And the moral license effect says anytime you think you're proud, you give yourself permission to do something you're ashamed of to get you back into authenticity. The homeostatic mechanism. And every time you do something you think you're ashamed of, it puts you back onto higher priority things and repurpose yourself back to higher priority things to build your pride again. Because if you're below equilibrium, below authenticity, you need to go up. If you're above, you need to come down to back to authenticity. 
So both pride and shame are feedback mechanisms to get you back to authenticity. The authenticity is not proud or ashamed. You, when you go and you see somebody get getting an award, on occasion, you'll see a few people that are a bit arrogant and they get the award and their, their responses and the people cut them down when they give them the, you, you see the response, like oh, an arrogant guy. Then you see sometimes somebody is really, really grateful and they list all the people that helped them get there. And then you give them a standing ovation. So life gives you a standing ovation when you're authentic and you realize all the people and all the things that led to the outcome. When you start to put it all around what you did, you automatically are going to get crushed. Pride before the fall. So it's a hubris. So I'm not interested. There's a very lovely video online with Robert De Niro. I've had the opportunity to have uh, dinner with Robert. And he's a very amazing guy. And he has this video out about don't get too cocky. Don't get too proud because it can change in a dime. And it's a very worth listening. It's only three minutes. But boy, that's a really punching information on, uh, from him about success and the humble, be humble ones with your success because it can be taken away from you in two seconds. Incredible. Yeah. And I think, I mean, what you talked about there, I mean, I, my mind was just starting to get flooded with, uh, I guess, a number of one hit wonders that we've observed in multiple areas that have sort of made that uh, journey to the top only to struggle to to sustain it. And I, and I imagine that's from your perspective, is probably one of the, the, the core reasons they'll struggle with that because of the, the exact process you've just described. Well, I don't know facts on this one. This is speculation a bit, but there was a great comedian who ended up not having their life. They took their life and, I know some people that kind of knew, and I, I had the opportunity to meet them in months, that there was a bit of a, I was once somebody, and I can't seem to get back to it. And so the, that that high, the addiction to a high, I would say depression is a comparison of your current reality to a fantasy about how life's supposed to be. And the addiction to a manic episode leads to a lot of self-depreciations and depressions. So don't get too, don't take credit, don't take blame, just keep focus on Chief Aim. The name of the game is thank you, I love you for the opportunity to be myself and to be able to be of service. If you, if you, if you exaggerate self or other, you get feedback to let you know it doesn't work. If you exaggerate other and minimize yourself, you'll say, damn it, I deserve more than that. If you exaggerate yourself, I, I, I'm not meeting their needs, I get humbled. So if you find a fair exchange where you have sustainability, it's the only thing in equity theory that's shown, sustainability comes from equity between self and other. So take no credit, take no blame, just keep focus on chief aim. The name of the game is thank you, I love you. Thank you for the opportunity to be doing what I love doing and being of service. Great. And I guess the key thing there is to actually respond <laughs> and notice and be aware of the feedback you are getting from your environment so that you can ultimately orientate yourself within it. If you don't listen to your physiology and you don't listen to your intuition, your social friendships and enemies are going to let you know it. And if you still don't get it, tragedy and comedy will come in. If you get really cocky, you'll get tragics, tragic tragedies. I took I took a sports team, so many times working with sports teams, and I go, go to a moment right now where and when you had a tragic accident or injury. You go prove this to yourself. Go, and go there. They all go there in their mind. I said, great. Got a piece of paper there in pencil? Yep. At that exact moment, what were you cocky, manic, arrogant, or thinking you're better, greater, or achieved, or successful, or power? Where were you puffed up? And they went, oh, God. And they write it down. I said, those are not accidents. Those are not injuries from, from something that's accidental. Those are juries from within drawing in events to get you back to the center of authenticity where you maximally perform, misinterpreted. So your your unconscious mind is it your unconscious mind? You fair to say, or, or would you say what 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 is it that governs that authenticity? What part of the what's going on in the brain in that respect, from your perspective? Well, our, the people misinterpret what intuition is, but intuition is an interceptive feedback system of thousands of little feedback loops in the brain, chemical, neural, electrical, all kinds. I mean, I've studied this thing. I'm, I'm writing a textbook on neurology right now, in fact, um, and. There's no doubt that intuition is a biofeedback, homeostatic feedback system trying to make you aware and become fully conscious. So when you're infatuated with yourself or others, 
your intuition is whispering the downsides, but you may be too ignorant to listen. You're ignoring it. That's what ignorance is, ignoring the intuitive response. If I went to some girl and I said, you're always nice, you're never mean, you're always kind, you're never cruel, you're always giving, never taking, she would immediately think of the time she's been stingy, mean, and, <laughs> and, 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 and you know not so kind. She would immediately be thinking about it as I'm saying that, to balance it out. Her intuition would pop that out. And if I said she's, she's negative and she's cruel and she's mean, she'd immediately think, of, no, I got times when I'm very nice. She'd be, her mind will come up with the other one to balance it out. Our intuition is doing whatever it can to balance out our perception so we can see both sides of ourself simultaneously, equally, because that's what homeostasis stability is. The polarized views create symptoms in our body and in our life Every symptom in our life, in every area of our life, spiritual, mental, career, financial, family, social, physical, every area of our life, the symptoms that are there are feedback mechanisms to try to get us back to our real self. Guarantee if people see that, see life that way, they'll be very grateful for life because life is giving them beautiful feedback. But if they're addicted to positive without negative, addicted to nice without mean, and have a fantasy, they're going to think that this stuff's out there. You're going to blame things. Epictetus, the Greek philosopher, said, when you first start your journey of mastery, you blame things on the outside or give credit to things on the outside. The devil made me do it and the savior is going to take care of me. But then you blame yourself and give credit to yourself on your journey. And then when you finally master your life, you realize that there's nothing there to blame or give credit to. There's nothing but a feedback mechanism. And it's not about blame or credit. It's not about negative or positive. They were always balanced. You didn't see it. Now you see it. And now you're grateful. Amazing. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but before we dive deeper into the conversation, I want to express how grateful I am that you're voluntarily choosing to spend your time here with us. I also want to take a moment to ask for your support. I want to bring you the best podcast I can in terms of guests, engaging discussions, and thought-provoking conversations every week. And that's where you come in. By hitting that like button and subscribing to the podcast, you play a vital role. Simply put, when you hit that like button or subscribe, you enable the podcast to reach a much wider audience. And the wider the audience, the easier it is for guests within my network to convince their agents, management teams to free up their diary and come on the show. Thank you in advance for your likes and subscriptions. Now, let's get back to business. And in terms of, I guess, another term that's banded around is this like extreme ownership. And I guess the opposite side of that is perhaps... Uh, victim mentality again are they are they two opposite ends of the pendulum and is the place to be in the middle or you know what's your perspective you ownership of what's happening yeah ownership taking ownership responsibility for the results you're producing in your life well there's a wisdom in in looking in but it's a there's a there's two levels of that wisdom if you if you're proud you're assuming that your actions in the past with your muscles caused this is a false, false attribution bias or false causality i call it caused more benefits and drawbacks more gains and losses more positive negatives to someone mm -hmm. that's called pride understood shame is an assumption that you with your motor actions in the past caused more negatives and positive more loss and gain more pain and pleasure to someone infatuation is an assumption that in the future through your senses you're going to get more positives and negatives, more gains and losses, more pleasures and pains from someone. And resentment is an assumption of the negatives more than positives. So anytime you have an imbalanced, skewed view that you're going to get more positives, negatives, or negatives and positives, it's like cutting a magnet in half and expecting to get a one-sided thing. There is no such thing. It's an illusion. Mm -hmm. Then you'll create false causalities. And false causalities is they're the cause of my happiness. You made me feel happy. You made me feel sad. Or I'm the cause of your happiness. I made you feel happy or sad. And these separations between self and other and causalities are where most people's crazies are. That's where all the drama is. When you realize that there's two sides to every event and to not take or give credit one way or the other, just honor and acknowledge and be thankful for the, bio, the, the, the polarities that are there. Because let's say somebody gives you an opportunity and you think, oh, thank you. And then you also find out now comes new responsibilities. So mm -hmm. there's pleasures and pains. And in order for you to do it, there's pleasures and pains. So it, it, 
you, that's why Epictetus said, get beyond that and realize that there's two sides to every event in life and not be attached to those things. So the Buddha says, again, the desire for that which is unavailable and the desire to avoid that's unavoidable is the source of human suffering. We get attached to those things, transcendent. Now, people think, well, I, I got to have success in order to win in a baseball game or a football game. Well, I'm not against having a benchmark that you're striving for. But if the second you go out there and you think if I, my whole identity is round around, if I succeed at that or not, you're going to be devastated if you don't. And you're going to be probably so adrenaline driven, amygdala driven, that you're probably not going to be centered and objective when you're doing the act. You know, the people that are really masters of what they're doing, they love what they're doing and they're inspired by it. And they get to do it every day and they and they end up becoming so proficient at it that they win. Yeah, that's, that's the difference. I, I definitely see, I think sport's a really good example here, but I think it's probably the same in business. But I sort of describe it as the sexy myth where people think, oh, I just want to be a professional athlete. I want to be a CEO of a company. I'm like, do you really? You've seen one side of this and that's the movie version of it because there's a lot of downsides that come with that as well. Are you willing to endure the pain and pleasure in the pursuit of that purpose? That's it. If you're yeah. willing to do the pleasure without the pain and you're not going to go there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's where so many people are, uh, I guess, out of balance in terms of what they perceive they're actually after. And that will ultimately stop them from uh, hitting the target. I tell people, you know, people come up to me and says, you know, oh, you're so gifted. Really? <laughs> I put in uh, hundreds of thousands of hours. I've been teaching the breakthrough experience that you, you attended. And I've done that 30,000, more than 30,000 hours. Yeah, that's now. incredible. Yeah. Just that one class. It's incredible. And it's an incredibly dynamic class as well. There's there's a lot of perceiving and decision making going on there from you. It's not a, a cookie cutter one for sure. Um can you can you can can you talk to us about where like black and white thinking comes into what we've been talking about here? Because it's something that I see way way more than I'd like in some of the organizations that I'm working with. Yeah. Well, they get they get stuck. Um, any the, the the more you, when you have a perfectly balanced and neutral system, you don't feel the loss and you don't feel the gain and you're present. But if you start to infatuate, you now feel the loss. If you resent with somebody, you feel the gain. Think about the car you got, the new car, and you're enamored with it. <laughs> and, and you drove it and parked it away from everybody else. So you didn't even get a ding on it. And then after five years, you didn't care. You hope somebody run into it so you can get a new car from insurance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're infatuated originally, and then after a while you're resenting it because it costs you more than it's worth. So you go through an infatuation, and now you you fear the loss of it or ding, the ding of it, and then you fear they have to keep it. So the polarities make you non-resilient, non-adaptable. And the most polarities is black and white. All positive, no negative. All negative, no positive which is strictly a survival mechanism for animals to capture prey and predator. It's a survival mechanism because they need that adrenaline to capture the prey and they need that adrenaline to get rid of the predator, to avoid the predator. So if you're in survival mode, then it's useful, but it's not great in normal functions and to excel at something. It's, it's, it, it, and it'll, it'll wipe out your adrenal glands and wear you out over a period of time trying to be one-sided and get rid of all the negatives and get always positive. That's why I don't promote positive thinking. I promote balanced thinking because that's sustainable. The rest of it's fantasy. And what's your opinions on the Stoics in that respect? I think the Stoics had sense. <clears throat> they knew to meditate on the evils and they knew to prepare for, you know, uh, you know Marcus Aurelius is an example, to prepare for what could go down and what could go wrong and prepare for it. So you got a contingency. I, I know this is gonna probably be controversial because Donald Trump's a controversial guy, but I used to live underneath him and I lived in Trump Tower and we were right below him almost. Wow. And I saw him quite often, I've known him for 30 years. And one day my wife and I were getting ready to go some, have some Japanese food. There's a little Hiroi Kanoi place down on 56th between 5th and 6th Avenue. And we were going down there to have lunch. And we came down and there Donna was in the, in the thing. We get down the elevator. We get into the lobby of the Trump Tower. And there's about a dozen people there waiting for him. And then we go through the little swivel door because that's how you exit. 
and he's with his entourage, his little disciples, right? <laughs> and we come down to the corner, we're waiting for the light to change. And I'm listening to the conversation that Donald's having with these people. And they're at that time building the Hudson River project. This is in the 90s. They're building the Hudson River project along the East Hudson River. And uh, or west, west of the city, but down the Hudson River. And I was listening to him, and it was interesting. Each of the people that were there were all contingency plan people. So the guy, he was asking for a report, and they were there with a report. One, one person was a specialist in Indian reservation and, and making sure they did historical records, make sure there's no Indian reservations buried in the ground because they got to go down 10 stories okay. to make the bottom of the basement. You know, they got to go down really deep to make this, this project. So they got to make sure they don't get trapped by an Indian burial. And all of a sudden the government stops them and they spent millions of dollars and they got to abandon the project. So he had an Indian burial specialist checking on the reports. What's the status? Do we have the land free and clear down at least 10 stories without causing a problem? That's a contingency plan. He also had mineral and oil and energy, any, anything that might be in the soil geologically, rock formations that we need to know about, any type of rock that's there. So a geological report. So he was thinking, thinking. then we had another guy that he had that was a real estate guy because they got little apartments down there and they got to get rid of those people. And there may be one guy who says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get out of there. So they got to build a building around this little apartment. So they got to figure out what's his values, what's his needs, what's his price to get, to get him out of there and give him what he wants to get him out of there. So he had, he didn't have positive thinking. Well, we won't think about negative things. He had every possible contingency person. Yeah. There were a dozen of them. And then they had to have contingency plans, not one, a dozen contingency plans for everything they found that might go in, in out, of, out of whack. So he was preparing for what could happen and not shooting from the hip, even though it looks like that on CNN. You know, he's that impulsive, but he's actually brighter than people think. And what he's doing in his area, maybe not politics, but in that area. So, but the point is, he was preparing and that was a really great little little adventure walking across the street with a team. You know, it was about a four minute experience, but very educational. He was preparing and making sure and getting reports from everybody and making sure that there was no obstacle. So he was anticipating. See, people who pursue challenges and problems that they would love to solve and mitigate the risk and set up a real strategy with contingency plans are going to be higher in probability of getting a goal than somebody that's just shooting from the hip and going doing it. Not that you can't get goals doing that, but the probability on a massive goal, little goal, no problem, mm -hmm. a massive goal, there's too many of those obstacles that if you don't think about them, you get nailed by and then you stop the project. Yeah, you, possibility. Can't, you can't get away with that, shoot from the hip at, uh, at the top anyway. <laughs> and one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, you were obviously featured as like one of the leading experts in um, the movie The Secret, which went incredibly viral. The The documentary for Perspective to People Listening, was it talked a lot about the law of attraction. Um, I wondered if you could share your opinions on, on the law of attraction full stop. Well, there's two. There's an exoteric and an esoteric aspect or a physical okay. and metaphysical aspect. The physical aspect is that all of our sensory information that comes in through every one of our senses and special senses that goes into the spinal cord, it goes into the brainstem, pass as they ascend up the ascending tracks in the brain to the thalamus before they, that's in the thalamus is the relay center before it goes into conscious cortical um, expression. And that thalamus has a pulvinar nuclei that filters and gates out information out of the infinitude of what we're perceiving, the ground. We're isolating bits and pieces out of the ground. And as we look out, there's an infinity in number of stimuli coming at us. But we filter out and discern what is the ground and what's the, the thing we're focusing on. That thalamus filters things out based on our clear intentions. And so if we're living by our highest values, and we have a clear intention, and we're not injecting values that cloud it, confuse it. We're seeing the highest probable information that allows us to fulfill what we want to do, and we call that synchronicity. 
So we literally create synchronous uh, observations in our nature and our synchronicity goes up to the degree that we're congruent with what our real intentions are then authentically. But if we set a goal that's not congruent with our highest values, our filtering mechanism is skewed and we don't see the synchronicities and we don't, we think, well, the world's not helping us. And so we're now less grateful for the world and not instead of grateful for the, what's happening because it's happening. So part of the law of attraction is simply starting with congruency because some people say, well, that law of attraction doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Well, that's because they're pursuing fantasies. And then other people go, I, I know that law. I've been living with that law. It's, it's, it's normal for me because they're congruent and they're high achieving. So that's just a neurophysiological response. And I can show the physiology, how it works, how the eye you know, screens things out, the hearing screens things out. That's absolutely demonstrable. So there's no metaphysical, no esoteric effort on that one. But I did something when I, in the 1980s. When I was in practice, I noticed that if I read the names of my patients every single day, I had a, my practice grew. And if I stopped reading them and focusing on the patients, it went down. And I started consulting with over a thousand doctor's offices during the 1980s, all different fields. And uh, if I made them memorize the names and think about the chief complaints and memorize their families' names and their kids' names and their jobs and know them and, and have their innermost dominant thought focusing on the clients, the clients that are even inactive reappear within a week. And we found 20% of the patients that we looked at showed back up within a week. Some went out and got in car crashes, I guess, to go come back in, or they got injured or hurt or something. I don't know, but they came in. So we saw that there was some sort of a resonation or some sort of a synchronicity by thinking about people. Now, there's lots of tricks in, in mentalism that gimmicks that people play that make you think you think about it, you manifest it. But I really believe that there is some sort of resonation because everybody here has had it happen enough to, to not ignore it, but not necessarily enough to bet money on it. They think about people and they call them and they show up or they yeah. call or run into them. You know, we've all had that. And it's too frequent to ignore, but not frequent enough to bet money on. It's in a gray <laughs> area. But I found about a 20% probability. I could go into a doctor's office, pull out the staff, put them in a room, take all the patient files, a thousand patient files, and give to five people uh, 200 each and said, we're now going to concentrate during our lunch period and read each one of these files during our lunch period. And then what we can do is we can find out, and these are all patients that have not been in anywhere from six months to six years. 20% will be in that door within a week, guaranteed. We proved that in chiropractic offices, doctor's offices, medical offices, podiatry offices, dental offices. I consulted with all those. 20 percent consistent so there's some sort of a resonation by thinking about and i and i know that at one time they didn't know that there were pheromones that were secreted by our emotions and picked up by other people but i really believe that there's there's more subtleties about the brain and how the nervous system was working that we've yet to uncover and understand but there's both physical and metaphysical reasons why that's happening Brilliant. Thank you for sharing for that. I think that's a, a brilliant explanation because, again, it's a, it's like one of those classic statements people talk about the law of, uh, law of attraction without explaining the context. And and obviously with your expertise in psychology, neuroscience, it, it's fascinating to see what's under the hood there. There's one more thing I wanted to ask you about because I think it's so cool. And you talk about, you know, you certainly do practice what you preach. That's one of the things I love about you. Um, and you talked about how one of your highest values is to travel. And you do that. Could you talk to us a little bit about how you do that? Because I just think it's such a cool thing the way you've managed to create this lifestyle that that uh, enables you to, to to come into alignment with with your highest values. Well, when I was 18 years old, I had a dream to be uh, a citizen of the world. I saw that on Albert Einstein's book that I read, and also in Epictetus's writings and Socrates' writings and many others. They, they, they call themselves citizens of the world. And so I always thought that's perfect for me. I've said the universe is my playground. The world is my home. Every country is a room and house. Every city is a platform to share my heart and soul. Since I was 20, I've been saying that every single day, like clockwork. And I live on a ship called the world. It goes to every country around the world, wherever water allows us, from the Antarctic to the Arctic to every country. We're sailing right now to Oslo. We just came in from Germany. We're on our oh, way to beautiful. Oslo right now. 
I love all and, of uh, and I've been living here for 22 years. And before that, I've traveled 20 million miles by, by flight. And I don't know how much by sea. And so I've been to 194 countries speaking and been more of that just traveling. So I'm a firm believer that what you see and what you visualize and what you affirm and what you think about does have an impact on your destiny. That's incredible. Last thing, I, I, there's a few quick fire questions I finish off every conversation with. Um, so short and sharp, but like, is there is there a performer, athlete, historical figure that jumps out to you as your sort of greatest performer of all time that you, you you've... I know it's a bit pedestaling against your principles too. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the people that pop in my mind as you said that is Bruce Lee and his martial arts. Incredible, yeah. What a guy. Yeah, and the, the amount of work he did studying his biography. And Phelps, 20-something yeah. gold medals. Incredible. You know, these are masters, masters of manifesting what they intend to create. And those are two that just popped in my head as you thought about it from sports. I mean, I can think of different fields. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, what about a leader? Is there a leader that's had an equivalent? Well, it depends on what you're as, asking and leading in. If it's leading in academics, is it leading in philosophy? Is it leading in... Whatever uh, leading is to you. In, in, in leading social media is probably Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, he's a, certainly an entertainer. Yeah. I, I don't know of one newspaper or one magazine or one something that's not mentioning him wherever no, I go in the world. incredible at that, isn't he? So from that, you know, maybe not leading a government, but from leading yeah. social media, that guy's a, a, a quite ingenious. Yeah. But it depends on what we're calling, what we're defining leadership. In the area of human behavior and, and, and breadth and depth of knowledge in any field that relates to it, I, I would look at myself. When it comes to uh, maybe sales and then communication, I might think of Tony Robbins. It depends on what, what it is that you are talking about, where the leadership is. And if they think about uh, politics, I, I remember meeting Gerald Ford, who was a former president that took over because of Nixon and all that. Uh, I had an opportunity to meet with him and chat with him and everything else. Man, that guy was an encyclopedia on politics. Yeah. And so I don't think people really got to ever appreciate his his brilliance in that area, knowledge-wise. You know, maybe not running the government, but just knowledge-wise. So it depends on what, once you get the context down, it's easy to pick pinpoint the individual problem. Sure. And then last one in in terms of quick fire is if there's if you could grab a coffee or a beer, whatever it is you like to 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 enjoy in your spare time with any historical figure, who would that be? And I imagine that's a hard question for you because Well, I, I had a special love for Albert Einstein yeah. because um I was told when I was when I was told I would never be able to read or write or communicate, Paul Bragg told me that start to tell yourself that I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom. And I've never missed a day in 50, almost one years of saying that to myself, I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom. I learned that a genius is one who listens to their inner voice and follows the inner vision of their soul and obeys it and doesn't let the world on the outside interfere with the world on the inside. And uh, so when I think of that, Einstein came to mind as far as they called him the genius, Da Vinci and Einstein. So I, I read everything I could on uh, Albert Einstein and my own posthumous biography uh, was inspired much by his his journey. So I, I'd have to say if I, I would love to have had a chat. He died the year after I was born. He, I was one when he died. I mm -hmm. never got to chat. I would love to have chatted with, with uh, Albert. Yeah, I bet that would have been an interesting one. <laughs> In uh, last question, there's probably a few people listening uh, to this conversation that, that perhaps – Maybe deep down they sort of know, they feel they've got more in them and they just need, I mean, but but for whatever reason, it's just a bit blocked or it's not coming or they're not quite sure where to start. What would your advice be to those people? Identify their highest values, prioritize their daily actions according to it, master the art of prioritizing whatever happens, how it's helping them get that and delegate everything else that they're not inspired to do that they need any form of motivation to do. So they free up the energy to do something extraordinary. Absolutely. Fantastic. Dr. Zibatini, thank you so much for your time. Have a brilliant uh, time in Oslo and um, I'll hopefully see you soon. Thank you. Thank you for this lovely interview. Thank you. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us today. I love this topic of human performance and excellence and I've been engaged in it neurotically for the last 20 years. It's a sincere privilege to have the opportunity to share my knowledge, network and learnings with you. 
Now go and put the principles to work. Make sure you let us know what resonates. Reach out with questions. Blind spots, we've got you covered. Remember, excellence is just a series of days repeated over and over again. Now go and win your day. In 2021, I published my first book, Accelerating Excellence. If you're finding the conversations and information on this podcast useful, you might want a physical reference point and to gain even deeper awareness of the concepts discussed. The book's actually more of an operation manual containing more detail with a step-by-step -step guide on how to implement all this stuff so you can get maximum benefit, which was one of my main motivations in writing it. Yes, I want the podcast and the book to be inspiring and entertaining, but it was non-negotiable for me to make sure that the listener or reader is provided with a structure and direction in terms of actually putting this stuff to work. The book's called Accelerating Excellence. It's a number one international bestseller. And if you're moving from more than just interest towards implementation, I think you'll really enjoy it. Like everything I do, the book is evidence-based, but practice-led, drawing on my experience, working with some of the world's most elite, exclusive, high-performing teams and individuals. It's filled with highly actionable strategies you can apply today to become better tomorrow. If this sounds like something from you, see the link in description where you can download six chapters of the book for free in either audio or digital format. It's also available to purchase on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at your local bookstore. I hope you enjoy. By now, we all know the importance of a winning mindset. We're bombarded with elite performers telling us that mindset's what separates the best from the rest. That if we want to be successful, we need to be more confident, resilient, and motivated. And of course, when panic strikes, we need to calm down, relax, or chill out. Great, we get it. But the question is how? We're given this guidance with almost zero practical advice in terms of how to achieve it. Where can we actually go to develop that world-class mindset? What's the back squat for resilience, the bench press for confidence, and the bicep curl for positive thinking? Well, that's why I created the Mindset app. Through the app, you'll gain access to the psychological skills training used by world champion athletes, special forces operators, and some of the world's most successful traders and investors. The reality is these guys pay me a fortune to help them get this right. But the thing is, these skills are equally, if not more important, for the aspiring athlete, executive, or operator. And that's exactly why I created this app. I want these tools and training available to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Mindset is a skill, and like any skill, it can be developed with the right strategy and effort. The tools and techniques are designed in a way that will literally rewire your brain. Like learning to ride a bike or drive a car, all the techniques are designed with creating a high-performing, self-regulating U2.0. Every strategy in the Mindset app is backed by empirical research. There's 10-minute emotional control training exercises that have been shown to increase your ability to overcome detrimental decision-making biases by up to 80%. In another study, just three weeks of executing visualization training led to 34% improvements in performance. Another research group found 50% greater improvements in the rate of learning. And just a few weeks of performing visualization led to 22% reductions in anxiety and 21% increases in confidence. These numbers are phenomenal. And I've never met an elite performer in any domain that can afford to be missing out on this type of edge. What I love most is that we've structured everything so that you don't need to carve out an extra hour in your day to get this done. Small bite-sized chunks of five to 10 minutes are all it takes. In fact, I'd only encourage you to use the tool on your commute, in the sauna, at the end of your working day, or bolt it onto the end of your gym session. Any dead time you have can now immediately be transformed to deliver you extreme performance gains. My goal is to remove every possible obstacle to your development. And with that in mind, the basic package is completely free. Visit the link in description and sign up for our pre-launch free emotional control, visualization, and performance routine programs. I really hope you enjoy.